Is New York City's homelessness crisis subsiding or strengthening? What do welfare numbers say about opportunity and safety net in New York City under Mayor de Blasio? You know, the topic for today, as you indicated, um, issues related to homelessness, social services, welfare roles, really meaty, interesting stuff that we're going to get into at around 5.15. Our guest today will be Steve Banks, the commissioner of the Department of Social Services for New York City. Uh, Really looking forward to this conversation. It's been a while since I've talked to Commissioner Banks. Um, He has been with the mayor from the start of the administration. There aren't that many of those left. Um, And he has really been the mayor's homelessness point person for the most part, other than the people that sort of run the shelters themselves. He's the guy responsible for a lot of the programming to try to combat homelessness in the city, among other things. And a guy with a really interesting backstory. He was a person who ran against de Blasio when he was beginning his political career back in 2001, running for a contested city council seat covering Park Slope and adjacent neighborhoods. And of course, Banks was most famous for many years serving as uh, one of the leading lawyers in in litigation against the city over its conduct of the homeless shelters, over how it ran its welfare system, um, especially under Mayor uh, Mayor Bloomberg, I'm sorry, Mayor Giuliani, and to a somewhat lesser extent uh, under Mayor Bloomberg. So interesting history, both in the administration and beforehand. And this issue, of course, is perhaps the most cited issue that is a problem in the city in terms of sort of the general day in, day out life of the city. Of course, there's you know the bigger issues with affordability in the city and the school system and things like that that are always troubled or big questions, the things the, you know, the mayor certainly ran on in 2013 and has worked to address to varying degrees of success. But, you know, in terms of like major crises in the city, homelessness is always cited among the top couple of of issues. And it's even one where the mayor himself has admitted to not doing well enough. And he's, you know, very rarely admits those types of issues, mistakes, regrets. And this is an issue where he said, you know, I don't think we had Uh, a full enough grasp of the problem. I don't think we recognize that we needed to throw more at it. He's had several different iterations of his homelessness approach. You know, they've seen some modest progress, I guess. We'll get Commissioner Banks' latest take on that. Um, But it continues to vex, certainly, the administration and be a major area of challenge. So as we um, look forward to our conversation here with Commissioner Steve Banks, um, when we think about the Department of Social Services here, what are some of the big areas? I know, you know, I, I'm very interested in talking with about homelessness, but what are some of the other topics you want to make sure we, we get to today? It's interesting. Homelessness obviously has been, as you mentioned, a, a major topic of conversation across the mayor's time in office. What's interesting is so many other parts of what Banks oversees, which includes HRA, the Department of, of Social Services writ large, which is one of the mega agencies uh, created under some reorganization of the city in earlier decades. The welfare system, uh, the system for uh, addressing people who need adult protective services, uh, what we used to call food stamps, now it's called SNAP. Really, every element of the social safety net, which touches millions of lives in the city, is a huge role in millions of lives, is under his purview. Well, that's the interesting thing is, be, you know, there are roughly 63,000 homeless people right now in New York City, certainly many thousands more on the verge of homelessness, many thousands more just who've come out of the shelter system and gotten, you know, been able to use housing vouchers or found stable housing. But, 
you know, even if you take that number to be roughly, you know, 100, 120,000 people, there are also, as you say, hundreds of thousands of other people in the city who are accessing services from the Department of Social Services, from the Human Resources Administration, um, that these these aspects of city government that don't always get a lot of attention. And, you know, we'll ask Banks about his broader portfolio because homelessness does get so much attention because so often it's something people see on the streets and see in the subways. And of course, this is such an important issue, but there are obviously major aspects of Banks' portfolio that you got at um, that also affect hundreds of thousands of people. And we know that, you know, under Mayor de Blasio, we've seen, according to the the city's data, uh, hundreds of thousands of people be lifted out of poverty in part because of the increase in the minimum wage that the city helped fight for and was passed at the state level. Um, but you, there's, they've had changes in some of those welfare policies that we'll get to uh, during this conversation that have really been fascinating because they've been breaks from the past from mayors Bloomberg and Giuliani. And of course, we'll ask Commissioner Banks about that in just a couple minutes. So let's welcome to the phones here on Max and Murphy, Commissioner Steve Banks from the Department of Social Services. Commissioner, welcome to WBAI. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. How are you doing today? Not too bad. How about you? Good, good. Thanks. Um, lots of stuff we want to get to you as you uh, with you as you know. Um, but let's let's start, of course, with um, with homelessness. Um, right now, at this point um, in your tenure, you've been uh, a mainstay of the De Blasio administration here from the start. Now, almost midway through term two. How would you how do you capture where the city is at in its fight against homelessness? How do you sort of broadly give people a snapshot of where we're at right now? Well, I think there's a, a couple of things to, to really focus on here. I mean, as, as you point out, I began as the HRA commissioner, and in uh, 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 2016, the mayor asked me to conduct a, a 90-day review of homeless services. And uh, coming out of that 90-day review in 2016, we implemented a, a plan in 2017 called Turn the Tide, which is really a break uh, with nearly uh, four decades worth of the city's approach. Uh, as you know, and I said, the Legal Aid Society, I, I sued both the agencies I now run, HRA and DHS, and uh, my perception was that the city managed to the, the right to shelter court orders as opposed to trying to put uh, in place a, a plan and approach that would really root out the cause of homelessness and fundamentally change uh, the city's approach. And so there are really four pillars in addressing homelessness, uh, prevention, rehousing, uh, uh, a new approach to providing shelter, and bringing people in off the streets. And on prevention, we've really adopted a prevention-first approach, and uh, we've invested in uh, first legal services to prevent evictions, and now together with the council, the first in the nation universal access to council law. Uh, and we've seen a 30, uh, nearly a, a more than a third decrease in evictions. Let me just repeat that. Nearly a third decrease in evictions by city marshals, and that's even before uh, the um, historic rent ref uh, law reforms that just occurred. So while evictions are going up across the country, evictions are actually down in New York City. In addition to uh, uh, providing lawyers in court, we, we've driven up uh, the representation rate from, you know, one percent, one out of a hundred uh, uh, tenants had a lawyer now, uh, you know, partially through the five-year implementation, uh, about 30 percent of the 
uh, tenants uh, have got lawyers, and that's really a tremendous change in leveling the playing field in fairness. But we've also provided more than a quarter of a million uh, 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 households with rent arrears payments to help prevent the prevent evictions, and that's really been a been a, a change in terms of a prior approach in which you had a separate HRA making determinations about whether to pay rent arrears and a separate Department of Homeless Services making the nightly decision about sheltering people. And now with the same agency making the decisions, we're really investing in, uh, in rental assistance, I'm sorry, re- uh, rent arrears payments to prevent evictions. We've also used every social services tool we have at the Department of Social Services to provide rehousing. And so through rental assistance, uh, and other housing programs that we have been working with our partners across the city. And 120,000 people have uh, gotten uh, secured permanent housing through our programs. Uh, the vast, vast majority of those are people who have moved out of shelter. Uh, we, have, uh, we said we would close uh, 360 uh, locations, including the units in the notorious Giuliani-era uh, cluster program and commercial hotels, which date back off and on to the 1960s. So far, out of more than 200 of uh, those 360 locations, and we said we would site 90 new borough-based uh, uh, shelters that would give an opportunity for families and individuals to be connected to the anchors of their lives, like schools and health care and employment and houses of worship. Uh, and so far, we've cited uh, 48 of those uh, shelters, and there are more to come. Uh, it's sort of at the midway point in this uh, five-year plan. And uh, last but not least, by doubling the number of outreach workers on the streets and in the subways and by tripling the number of safe haven beds and uh, investing in supportive housing, we've been able to bring uh, uh, 2,000, more than 2,200 people in off the streets who have remained off the streets, and that's really the metric that we focus on. In the past, there was a focus on the night-to-night bringing someone in. We really focused on bringing people off the streets who remain off the streets. So I think that's the context in which we've been fighting homelessness, but I do think that we've also got the context of the reforms that we're making at HRA uh, that we began to implement right at the beginning, uh, my first day, which was April 1st. Uh, we've really changed the way that clients are able to access benefits because we see <clears throat> providing income supports as one way to give people the stability to avoid uh, losing their housing. Do you regret making April Fool's your first day? Is that ominous for you? Uh, I'll tell you a story. So my first day at, at work, I, I think you, you know this because we talked over the years, I began my legal aid career. Um, uh, Kerry was the governor, uh, Koch was the mayor, and I began at the Staten Island Neighborhood Office in the civil side. And so my first day on April Fool's 2014, I wanted not to be behind a desk. I wanted to be out, out meeting with staff around the city. So we, we arranged for me to go to meet with staff in, in all five boroughs. And the first place I go to is Staten Island. And it was kind of not planned for me. It was just one of those sort of uh, interesting things of life. I go to the, I go to the, the office in Staten Island. I, I explain uh, my vision and how we're going to make some changes, which will help both the workers and the clients. 
And uh, uh, the first question I get when I'm done, I say, any questions? And they say, after suing us for nearly four decades, what qualifies you to be the commissioner? Uh, so I thought I would just give you that little background of, uh, of <laughs> yeah, my first day of work. An auspicious day, indeed. So we talk about, uh, just let's talk for a second about the problem that you are attempting to address, because we talk about homelessness as like a unitary thing, but obviously 59,000 people uh, you know, something like 31,000 households total in the homeless shelter system. And, and there's a unique story for each of them. And and it obviously is a multifaceted population. And one thing that, that I've noticed in recent years, and I'm not alone in this, is that while obviously families with children remains a major part of the system, there's been a lot of growth in the number of single adults in the system. In fact, that's where I think the most explosive growth has been in terms of year-over-year percentage basis. Do you have a sense of what's driving that? Why are single adult numbers climbing as quickly as we see them climbing? Uh, so let me. There's a couple of uh, I think important points that you're making that I want to I want to amplify. Uh, first, you know we have to see this in the national context. Uh, this isn't a, a, a New York City challenge. It's a challenge across the country. I'm sure you, you've, you've been reporting or been focusing on uh, what's happening in terms of West Coast homelessness. Uh, and by the way, in West Coast, homelessness is primarily street homelessness. Uh, in New York, uh, uh, the, the very, a relatively small percentage, about 4% of people who are homeless in the city or on the streets in comparison to uh, the reverse uh, in, in many cities uh, in, uh, in California. And, you know, when we first, when we did the 90-day review uh, in 2016, we really looked at what the drivers of homelessness were in New York City. And uh, there had been a 115% increase in homelessness between 1994 and uh, 2014, and in particular, a 38% increase in homelessness in New York City between 2011 and 2014 after the city and the state ended the Advantage Rental Assistance Program and tried to run the shelter system between 2011 and 2014 with no permanent housing resources. Uh, And we saw what the result of that was, a a nearly 40% increase in homelessness. Uh, and so when we began to implement the, the reforms uh, with the Office of Management and Budget, we actually projected that if we didn't break the trajectory, we would be uh, about 70, more than 70,000 people would be in shelter now. But you're quite right to say there are different factors that are, that are drivers here. Uh, really, you know, when I first began to work with homeless people in the, in the early 80s, uh, you know, the face of homelessness was a single adult on the street. Uh, in the Bowery, and uh, what we found now is the, the face of the homelessness is families, uh, in particular children, and the economic drivers are what we have, what we inherited, uh, with rents up uh, nearly 19 percent, income up less than five uh, percent, uh, 150,000 rent-regulated apartments that have been lost uh, as a result of the lack of rent uh, reform in, in prior years. So those are all well-known facts, I know, to you and your viewers. And so we've been able to break the the trajectory of homelessness by reducing the growth of family homelessness. Single adult homelessness 
uh, is 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 really sort of a, 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 a reflection of really important progressive policy changes across the country. So deinstitutionalization, instead of having people in mental health facilities uh, all across the country, people, the governments adopted a policy that people should be in the least restricted uh, environment, which is in the community. But the promise of that deinstitutionalization all across the country and in New York was that there would be community-based mental health services. And because that system is not robust, uh, you see people ending up in, in shelter, and that's really a national phenomenon. You also see uh, the, uh, the uh, ending of mass incarceration, which is an important public policy, resulting in people being released and having no place to go. And so you've got nearly 10% of our single adult uh, population, uh, our parolees been uh, uh, on parole. So the factors driving single adult homelessness are ones that we are going to be able to address with our increased uh, uh, allocations of supportive housing uh, and, and so forth. But I know you're also focused on the aging population in the city, and you see all across the country, uh, and Dennis Culhane has done important research on this, you see a cohort of 45-year-olds to, to over 60-year-olds uh, who are driving the homelessness numbers for single adults all across the country. Of course, for single adults, you have another factor, which, which I, you have reported on before, and you shed a lot of light on this. You have uh, a 1.1 uh, percent vacancy rate for apartments res renting for less than $800. That's down from 1.8% uh, just a couple of years ago. So you can see a, a shrinking of the housing supply for that group of, group of individuals just at the time when many more individuals are being released from mass incarceration, very important change, and the, uh, the, the, the policy changes over the last several decades with respect to mental health. So, so you hit on a couple aspects here, which I think are, are you know sort of part of the critique of how the administration has handled homelessness, which is that there hasn't really been a comprehensive plan to connect um, the fight against homelessness to the mayor's affordable housing plan in a better way, as you just indicated about that vacancy rate for apartments under $800 a month, um, the the mental health social services um, just haven't been there to the degree needed, uh, the services for people leaving jail and prison uh, haven't been there to the degree needed. Is is the enormity of the problem so challenging that it just has you, you? The city has not been able to really um, do it in a comprehensive way, or what's you know what's sort of standing in the way there? Because this is you know getting towards the end of year six of the administration. Well, you know, look, I'm as impatient as anybody. Uh, I don't think that uh, you should have this job unless you're you're impatient to, to, to and, and, and dissatisfied with where we are. Uh, but I, I want to just refocus on a couple of things we talked about a little bit earlier, which is for the first time in a decade, uh, the uh, DHS shelter census is flat and actually trending downward. Uh, after uh, years of, of, uh, of exponential increase, particularly those years 2011-2014. So simply breaking the trajectory and uh, beginning to move in a downward direction uh, it has been a result of having, for the first time, a comprehensive plan. Again, pre preventing evictions and reducing evictions in New York City by more than a third when they're up all across the country by having universal access 
and by investing in rent arrears, that is part of having a comprehensive plan. Investing rental assistance and rehousing resources so that 120,000 people have gotten housing is part of having a comprehensive plan. And getting out of more than 200 uh, locations that never should have been shelters is part of having a comprehensive plan. But you are right to point out that we are working in an affordability crisis that's built up over many years. It didn't happen in 2014. It happened over several decades. And the investments in rental assistance, the investments in legal services, uh, and the investments in support of housing and the Housing New York plan are all part of uh, addressing these trends that have, have uh, built up. In terms of mental health, you know, tripling the number of safe haven beds for people who are on the streets uh, many of whom have mental health challenges, is part of meeting our clients where they are uh, and addressing, uh, again, a, a problem that has built up in many years. So I don't think the problem is too large to address. I think that you have to, we all have to look at the context in which it's built up over many years and the breaking the trajectory and moving the, the needle in the right direction is part of progress. I am acutely aware we have more to do, but we have much more to do. When you think about the units that the city has some control over through Section 8 vouchers, the units in New York City Housing Authority public housing, and the apartments being created under the mayor's Housing New York plan, uh, or preserved under that plan, which will ultimately be about 300,000, do you feel as though a large enough number of those have been reserved for people coming out of the shelter system? Look, I, I just have to focus on the on the facts on the ground that, that we're experiencing with our clients. 120,000 people have gotten uh, housing assistance through the social services programs and the related programs that we've put in place over the last several years. Uh, can we do, do more? We are doing more. As you know, uh, we recently uh, uh, financed not-for-profits to purchase uh, buildings that have been used as clusters. This was a flawed program from day one in which the city 19 years ago uh, uh, took uh, units uh, that could have been housing and turned them into shelter uh, and then let substandard conditions develop. So we reversed that by saying we're going to uh, purchase uh, uh, finance uh, the purchase of the buildings by reputable not-for-profits and turn them into affordable housing. We've done one transaction so far. There are more to come. Uh, we're two-thirds of the way out of the clusters, and uh, as we continue to exit them, there'll be more uh, transactions that will be producing permanent housing for our clients. I'm rec I recall, though, and I just want to again put, you know, you, you and I have talked many times over the years, and I'm sure you can sort of, this picture I'm going to paint for you, you, you'll see. I was at a community board meeting. I'm not going to say what community it was in. Uh, there are many community boards. It was a grouping of many of them. And somebody said to me, you and de Blasio are such dopes. You should do what LaGuardia did, which is, uh, to develop public housing, uh, and that's how, uh, you know, LaGuardia addressed the housing crisis in the city. And I said, you know what, there's one thing LaGuardia had uh, that we don't. He had Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, speaking of the housing plan, though, um, to put it, I guess, a little bit of a different way, um, 
the mayor has done not only a reset or two of the homelessness plan, but a reset of the or two of the affordable housing plan. And when he brought Vicki Bean back in as deputy mayor for housing and economic development, they very forthrightly said there's another tweak to the affordable housing plan coming. I guess we just want to know, is that are you? intricately involved in those discussions because, uh, uh, you know, these criticisms that we're raising of the housing plan have been not enough units for people coming out of homelessness, um, you know, how NYCHA factors into the picture on both fronts. Are you able to, you know, sort of elevate the voice of your clients and the needs of your agencies into that housing plan discussion? Look, you know, as someone said in history, uh, I didn't come into government to be a potted plant. Uh, I'm someone that speaks my mind, uh, and uh, I, you know, have known Vicky for years, and we're in constant dialogue about uh, about how to address uh, some of the very issues you're talking about. Talk about the shelter siting. You mentioned turning the tide, talking about creating 90 new shelters, and and you know, obviously, there's been movement on. I think a couple dozen of those that we've we've seen. I'm sure there's movement behind the scenes on others in some neighborhoods that has created some opposition. But the the plan has this interesting approach, at least as I read it, that you want to try to keep people in their communities as close as you can to schools and churches and family, uh, but you also want to address the fair share question, uh, the idea of whether all this infrastructure is concentrated in some neighborhoods. And it strikes me those goals could sometimes be at tension with each other. How do you how do you balance those? And what role do you think is appropriate for community input? Because that's the question people ask about all projects. And it certainly has been asked about some of the shelter proposals. Sure. I, I want to compliment some of the reporting in, in city limits recently on uh, on uh, shelter sightings. I think that uh, there were some very important uh, facts that the city limits reporting highlighted. First, I think the uh, you know the narrative is that all communities uh, are uh, you know oppose the opening of shelters, and I think that the um, the focus of that reporting really highlighted the fact that out of 48 sightings, uh, there has been uh, opposition in very few, and only a handful of lawsuits. Everyone with one. Uh, certainly, the lawsuits uh, result in delays and openings. But uh, but I think that uh, the narrative is that every every opening meets. Uh, uh, with litigation and every opening uh, it creates a, 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 a fight, and that has not been the case. I think another aspect of the reporting that was very important to highlight is uh, the fear that uh, crime uh, will uh, be increased, that, that safety uh, will be endangered. I think that the reporting really uh, shows that the, the facts just don't bear that out, and I think that that was really critical. But look, from another perspective, you know, I came into government as someone who had represented individual clients for many, many years, and from a client's perspective, you've got a child in school, or you've got your job, or you've got the house of worship that you that you that you tend, or you get your health care in a particular area of a borough, and you've just gone through the trauma of losing your home. You want to be housed as close as possible to those anchors of your lives. And the shelter system, as it was created, again, managing to court orders without a kind of an underlying vision, 
was one in which wherever you could open shelters, you would open shelters. That was the past, past that, that we inherited. I can recall in the Koch administration getting uh, notification about the opening of a shelter in a couple of hours to go out and inspect it as part of the litigation. And we made a policy choice of uh, giving at least 30 days notice. On average, it's been about 100 days notice before we open uh, shelters. And uh, that's one of the four pillars is taking a new approach to providing shelter to connect people as close as possible to the anchors of their lives. That child that's homeless uh, wants to go to school as close as possible to where they used to live. Um, I, I should also say that your other, there's other reporting in, in City Limits that also highlighted that we've been citing shelters in places that shelters hadn't ever been cited in because the focus was always on uh, simply any old real estate would do, and we've been very much focused on uh, sightings uh, to make sure that we have uh, uh, shelters throughout the city. And look, there are people in our shelter system from literally every community board, and when we complete uh, the, the plan, there'll be a, 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 the opportunity to be sheltered as close as possible to the anchors of your life because we'll have shelters in every community. How many of the 48 that have been cited are open? Uh, 26 are currently open, and that really relates to the realities that uh, you see in all aspects of life in the city, that uh, opening and developing uh, property takes time, but we're... We're confident that we're going to get to the 90. We're already halfway there, about halfway through the plan, with 48 cited and, and as I said, 26 open. Is the is the 90 still the right goal? I mean, after this amount of time, I mean, you know, on all sides of this equation, you know, sort of these questions get raised about why aren't, you know, sure, you of course need some shelters, but why aren't as many resources as possible put into um, you know, finding permanent housing for people, getting them rehoused, keeping them in housing versus the significant expense of opening, developing, rehabbing, and paying for shelter. You know, are you sure that the 90 is still the right goal? Are you reevaluating that? Does it make sense to try to reallocate some of those resources into more immediate rehousing? Yeah, I, I think you, you you put your your finger on the right questions, but I want to go back to the, the uh, where we began on this, which is that we actually have a comprehensive plan that's prevention first, that is investing uh, substantial dollars in rehousing as well as prevention, uh, and we're shrinking the footprint of the shelter system by getting out of 360 locations and replacing them with a smaller number of 90 uh, borough-based shelters to give people, the, the, again, the opportunity to be connected as close as possible to their, their communities. Uh, at the end of the day, too, we're investing more in the shelter providers themselves because one of the legacies of the past is that there was disinvestment in the services for clients and disinvestment in the maintenance, which is why all those violations built up you know, when we when we started the 90-day review, I, we conducted a, a inspections of every single location and uh, found conditions that needed to be repaired uh, uh, throughout the system because of disinvestment and maintenance. So I think your question is fair, but it's important to keep the context in mind. We're not simply developing shelters. We're investing in prevention, uh, first in the nation, universal access to counsel, rent arrears payments. We're investing in rental assistance and rehousing. 120,000 people were rehoused. Uh, and uh, we're closing 360 locations. 200 we're already out of. Last question on homelessness, and then we'll move on to a couple other topics in our last uh, five minutes or so here. Commissioner Steve 
Banks joining us here on WBAI, 99.5 FM, WBAI.org. Thank you for the time, uh, Commissioner Banks. Um, There's been a lot of conversation recently, especially from the governor, about homelessness in the subway system. And, uh, you know, to my ears, sometimes the way that folks at the MTA and the governor have talked about this issue, um, you know, it sounded a lot more, especially with the announcement of the hiring of 500 more MTA police officers, that this is a criminal justice um, issue. And I wonder how that, you know, burns in your ears, because I can't imagine that 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 some of the way that this is being talked about or, or discussed um, or dealt with is how you would design it. Look, I mean, we work closely with the State Office of Temporary Assistance and Disability Assistance, as well as the MTA. Uh, and that's we've doubled the number of outreach workers in the subways. We've been able to bring, of that 2,200 people who have come up off the streets and remained off, again, the most important metric to focus on, 600 uh, of those human beings who were in the subways, and we brought them out and back into transitional and permanent housing programs where they remain. Uh, you know, the city uh, took an approach that said, you know, where there are violations of rules that would resu- result in uh, catching someone up in the criminal justice process, that w- the city would put in place a diversion program. And that's what we agreed to do, which is that we would make shelter available uh, to anyone who was facing uh, the possibility of being caught up in the criminal justice system with uh, uh, that the police uh, had, were putting under arrest or issuing a summons to, I should say. So, look, there are multiple approaches to addressing this. I think uh, more resources from multiple levels of government is always good for our clients, uh, and we've been very much focused on diverting people from the criminal justice system uh, into shelter and into housing. So let's switch to other elements of your large portfolio for the few minutes we have left. And one of them is uh, the programs that are loosely grouped under welfare. And the fact that welfare numbers have have dropped um, pretty significantly during the administration. What story does that does that tell? And, you know, I'm just checking the latest sort of snapshot. It indicates that uh, 15% or so of the people involved in that system are either in sanctions or in the sanction process. Um, Does that indicate that 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 issue of people hitting sanctions is still driving people off the rolls or or forcing them to confront being driven off the rolls as it was in, in future, sorry, in past administrations? Um, I, I'm not sure you're right on the numbers, but let's let's delve into it a little bit. So I think you remember when I was first appointed, uh, the, the there were dire predictions that the public assistance caseload would you know go back to a million. You can read certain articles that were written that, that about that if we were going to take a more client-centric approach, that that would result in uh, an explosion of, of caseload. I think what the what the caseload shows is that by taking a more uh, uh, by by taking a, a less punitive approach, uh, that uh, you can meet people where they are and provide them with the assistance rather than the parade of horribles that were conjured up. When I first became a commissioner, there was uh, you know high high numbers of state fair hearing requests, meaning clients appealing to the state complaining about. Uh, uh, reductions or denials of services uh, uh, or imposition of sanctions. And one of the things we did was we've actually reduced the number of fair requests by 47 percent 
by putting in place a, a, a greater access to benefits, allowing people for, with food stamps, for example, to apply online, to do their interviews online, to do recertifications online, and never having to come into one of our offices. Similarly, we ended the WEP program. Uh, making clients work off their benefits and instead implemented a, a much more robust job training uh, series of programs, including uh, JTP or job training programs uh, at various locations. And so I think overall the story in terms of public assistance is despite the predictions that if you took a more uh, supportive and less punitive approach, uh, as reflected in the drop in fair hearing requests, that the caseload would increase. In fact, that did not happen. Sanctions, uh, we actually uh, fought for and uh, obtained a change in state law to make it clear with respect to public assistance sanctions that uh, rather than being a durational sanction, meaning it was for a set period of time, uh, you could cure it at any time. And that was a major change in state law, and, we, and together with advocates, we worked on that, and we think that that has made a, a significant difference. I think that overall, the numbers of clients that are actually sanctioned is at a historic low. Uh, and I think you might be looking at figures that reflect people who are in a process which we put in place in which if they were going to be sanctioned, we set in place a whole range of, uh, of uh, services to keep them from ending up in sanction status and supporting them to get uh, back into the programs to help them move off the caseload. So I think you're right to focus on percentage of people in the process, but I would direct your attention to the numbers of people who are actually sanctioned, which is, which is historically uh, a very, very low level. That's a very fair point. And, and speaking of other numbers, the, the food stamp or SNAP numbers is something that we've looked at and others as well. Um, they have trended down really across the administration. And, you know, again, I, I wonder what's the num- what's the story behind those those numbers? Is that an improving economy or those changes in the federal shape of the program? And, and obviously the question that I think people have long asked is whether there are eligible people in the city who are not getting food stamps that that really could be uh, uh, driven to that program and and whether there is anything more we can do to try to uh, get them to, to sign up. I think there's three factors. Uh, and I appreciate the question. One factor is the national trend is reflected in the city uh, with the uh, proving economy, fewer people nationally are receiving food stamps and fewer people in your city refusing, uh, receiving food stamps. I think the second factor was a change uh, that the Congress made uh, several years ago uh, in which the uh, basic benefit level uh, ended up being reduced. And so for many people, the benefit level is, is very, very low now. Uh, and I can recall uh, you know, clients saying, what am I going to do that for to get $20 in benefits? Uh, and I think that that the national trend in the trend in New York City is in part reflected of not only the economy improving, but the reduction in the benefit levels uh, that that um, make one wonder whether or not it is worth it for a very limited benefit. I think the third factor, and this is really important, is uh, the impact on uh, on immigrants. And I think uh, you've you've. Uh, written and spoken about this before. This is the Trump administration's uh, new public charge rule, which I just want to say for the listeners, it's not in effect yet, uh, but it certainly has created uh, a great deal of fear. Uh, New York City, together with New York State, uh, led by the Attorney General uh, Letitia James, have gone to court 
along with advocacy groups in other states to stop uh, the implementation of this rule, but we can already see the impact on it. So let me give you the context. Uh, there are, uh, in, in June 2019, there are approximately uh, 1.5 million city residents receiving food stamps, or SNAP benefits as they're now called. That's nearly 20% of the population. About 200,000 of those individuals are non-citizens legally residing in New York City and legally eligible under federal law to receive benefits. Now, uh, what we did see, though, was between 2017 and 2019, January 2017, January 2019, cases headed by non-citizens decreased by 15%. In contrast, this food stamps or SNAP cases headed by citizens, which decreased approximately 1%. So the drop-off rate for non-citizens headed households is about 10 times higher than the rate among citizen households. That's the result of fear uh, and the kind of uh, uh, approach that the federal government has been taking. So what we're seeing is individuals who are eligible for our benefits are disenrolling or not availing themselves of these benefits uh, in this atmosphere of attacks on immigrants. So even immigrants who are legally present in the United States, legally entitled to receive food stamps, are in fear that the continued receipt of those benefits will affect their ability to remain in the country. And that's clearly had an impact both on human beings, on uh, people's ability to to, uh, to purchase food, has an economic impact on New York City in terms of lost food stamp dollars and the ability to spend those dollars in stores around the city. And it's clearly had an impact, obviously, on the numbers of people receiving benefits. Important point. Uh, quick final question. Just wanted to follow up on something you said a couple minutes ago. You mentioned um, the city... Uh, enhancing investing in job training programs. I recently heard the mayor in an interview talk about job training is not really the key. It's job training and placement. Um, and do you have data you know, at your fingertips by any chance that indicates that the job training is leading to placement? So I, th- I think the mayor is absolutely right. It's a combination of training and placement. For our clients, it's also a question of uh, uh, making sure that our clients have the opportunity to uh, get a high school equivalency if they haven't gotten a high school equivalency. Uh, I think the data shows that with each credential you have, whether it's high school equivalency, a co- some uh, college, or even a college degree, your earning power increases. And so when I first came in, we looked at what people were doing in, believe it or not, states like Kentucky and Texas, other places had a much more robust approach to education and training uh, for individuals who are receiving public assistance. And we put in place those kinds of programs. Uh, We fought for and won the right to get uh, clients to be able to attend four-year college and to have activities in college count as work activities. Uh, And so we've been taking, again, an approach that says we want to give our clients the ability to earn as much as they can and have a career pathway off of public assistance. So I agree with the mayor, it's about placement, but for our clients it's also about education and training Mm -hmm. in combination. Uh, We implemented this new program two years ago uh, and we're still developing uh, the data on it. Okay, well we'll follow up for that data, check the mayor's manager report in case there's anything interesting in there as we let off the show saying that that most recent iteration of the MMR is out and lots of other uh, good stuff related to your portfolio in there to look around and ask you about in the future. Um, Commissioner Steve Banks, thanks so much for taking the time with us. Thanks for making the time for me. I appreciate it. Okay. 
And that was Commissioner Steve Banks, the mayor's point person on homelessness and also the uh, commissioner of the Department of Social Services, which has a huge umbrella, uh, including the Human Resources Administration, which he came on to run at the beginning of the de Blasio administration in 2014. And he's instituted a lot of reforms, a lot of programs. And of course, there's a lot to continue to evaluate in terms of his performance and therefore the mayor's performance. And his portfolio, as he alluded to, increased when the mayor decided to merge uh, DHS with, uh, with with HRA and, and, and for, for many reasons, among them, some of the things banks talked about, you know, people who are paying welfare benefits being in the same in the same general organization as those who are making sheltering decisions. So interesting points there. Yeah. And I tried to get at this a little bit. There's, you know, this could almost be a whole half hour conversation about the interconnectedness of the different pieces, even Within his portfolio, directly under him, there's a lot of questions around that. And then, as I tried to get at, there's also the questions around whether his pieces are also interacting well with other interrelated pieces like the affordable housing plan. And, you know, it is really, really interesting how the, you know, there are elements of the affordable housing plan that touch on homelessness, but they are not like a clearly interconnected set of, of plans. And you should even, you know, talk about bringing NYCHA into that mix as well. Um, you know, that might get too big, but it's really worth asking some questions about whether those pieces do interact uh, well enough. Perfect segue for me to say, please check out GothamGazette.com and CityLimits.org for coverage of homelessness, welfare, and all the other issues shaping our city. Please stay tuned here for the WBAI Evening News. Reggie Johnson has been our engineer. Xavier Means is our intern. Our music is by Fort Indy. Max Murphy comes at you every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Until next week, have a great week in the greatest city in the world.